Please be seated. <clears throat> well, I mentioned uh, that it was providential. I think so. I, hadn't, I, I don't have any great conspiracy plan of how all the texts break out throughout the year. And I simply stopped preaching where we finished uh, when Advent started. But having come back now and thinking about where we are in this, I do think that this particular episode is, is a great snapshot of all that we've seen in the book of Jeremiah. It's shorter uh, than, than maybe a, a text that we would normally take. It's the end, but you'll see the break comes next, the destruction of Jerusalem and why we are taking this. But I think that this particular uh, passage gives us a glimpse into not just the heart and mind of Zedekiah, but he's really representative, a representative of the entire nation of Judah. This is where the people were. The first thing we see about Zedekiah, we know he's a fickle king. We've seen him already. He lacks courage. He lacks any sense of strength to lead. His faith was not in Yahweh. He would ask Jeremiah for a word from the Lord. Is there a new prophecy? He had had hopes that there would be a different prophecy. And each time, he, he seemed to indicate that he believed Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He would ask him for the message, but each time he wouldn't listen He wouldn't respond to the message appropriately. We also see in this text a fear of man. He's afraid of the Judeans. He he brings that up. It's almost a distraction compared to what the real threat is against him being the Babylonian army. But secondly, Zedekiah would not obey the word of the Lord that Jeremiah delivered. And this is not just the problem of the king, but really the problem of all of Judah. The people of Judah had walked in opposition to God's word. They had opposed his instruction, and they had refused to repent as he called them to do so over and over again. So here there's this fear of man, a lack of a proper fear of God, both in Zedekiah's life, but they serve as a reflection of the heart of the nation. Now, as a result of this, God has promised to send this invading army, the Babylonian army, to discipline Judah because they have not repented. And now this army is just outside the city gates. In fact, that's what's, that's what's coming next. If you peek ahead in your Bible, Jerusalem is about to be sacked. But in this message, Jeremiah uh, gives to Zedekiah, he still has a chance to have his life spared. All along, the message has been, repent, and God will not send the judging army. But now that they have refused to do so, God has sent the judging army, just as he promised, but now Zedekiah has a chance to spare his own life. But it's, a, it's unusual if you think about it because to his own perspective, uh, surrendering isn't the right way to go. Surrendering means I'm going to become a victim of this, uh, this king of, of Babylon. And this is why it requires faith for him to trust God, trust the, the mouthpiece, the messenger of God, Jeremiah, to believe that this could actually turn out good as, for his good. I'll tell you that he doesn't. Zedekiah won't, and it's not surprising to any of you to hear that if you've never read through Jeremiah because of who Zedekiah is. He refuses to obey. He never has true faith. There's a sense of humility that's required in obedience. We have to humble ourselves to acknowledge that God knows better than us. And in this case, Jeremiah, or Zedekiah is refusing to do that. And as a result of refusing to humble himself and obey, he's going to face the ultimate humiliation of being carried off Um, as Babylon takes over and mocked as he's done so. The same is true when we face temptation and sin in our own hearts. We often prefer the pleasure of sin for a moment, and instead of the consequences, we we prefer the the, the pleasure and, and disregard the consequences. 
or we refuse to humble ourselves and seek the help that we need as we slip back into an addictive behavior that we know will consume us. We hear God's word as clearly as Zedekiah heard the message from Jeremiah, but like him, we refuse to do what is right. And like a world powers invading army outside of our city gates, sin stands ready to consume and destroy our lives. We're living in a time when the revelation of God's word, his revealed word in scripture is not regarded with much respect. None of us, I think, would debate that. But our tendency is to look at this and see it as out there. It's the problem of the culture, that the, cult, the culture's decline. When I was a kid, it wasn't this way. There wasn't this um, just antagonism toward Christianity. And while those things may be true, I would ask this morning that we consider the problem not so much as being out there and the problem being more in here, because the problem is personal. All of us are personally held to account and are personally confronted with the Word of God. It matters how each of us responds, no matter how anyone else responds. If the whole world rejects the Word of God, it matters for each of us personally how we respond to it. And so the question is always, will we listen and will we obey? Or will we simply follow the patterns and the trends in the broader culture, or even the patterns and trends that emerge within Christianity and its subcultures that prefer either to add to or take away or leave out the things that we don't like or prefer. You see, God's Word is not a book of laborious burdens that we are forced to obey. Obedience is sometimes tough. Let's not say that it isn't. It is. There are times when obedience is really tough. I think it would have been very tough for Zedekiah to trust the Lord that turning himself over was the right thing to do. But God's word is actually a gracious gift of life-giving instruction and wisdom so that we can know how to live the abundant life. He has given us his word for our good and for our benefit. He has told us how we are to live and find true blessedness. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. And so whatever it is that we're tempted to do, may we fight against it. Maybe, again, it's the fear of not being liked by friends and coworkers when you're tempted to discard or downplay the Bible's teaching on sexuality, on selflessness, on justice, or faith in Christ alone. Maybe you're tempted to hold on to the sin of bitterness rather than forgive as you have been forgiven. Maybe it is that you simply want to keep a pet sin hidden because you don't think it's hurting anyone else instead of seeking to kill that sin because you know if you don't, it will consume you. Whatever it is that we're tempted to do, to stiff-arm God's good word to us, may we repent of that and instead embrace the good gift that it is for a life of blessing and peace. Well, we left Jeremiah last November, (laughs) last year, Uh, having just been rescued out of the cistern he had been thrown into. This was probably the darkest of days that he had. So far, he was in that muddy well, and Abed-Melech sought to rescue him and did so and lifted him up. And this is some time, I think it's not very long, we're not told exactly, that Zedekiah now summons Jeremiah 
to request of him a meeting. It's, this one's a, a secretive meeting. Now, the king's done this before. We've seen him do this as recent as the last chapter, where he seeks to hear if Jeremiah's got what he really wants is a new message, a new word from the Lord. But he continually asks, is there a word from the Lord? Jeremiah has consistently given him the same message over and over. He keeps telling him the message doesn't change. Uh, you almost think Zedekiah is like the person who goes to the doctor and gets the diagnosis and then goes back to the doctor with the hopes that the diagnosis has changed. And the diagnosis is the same, and he goes back again, and this is kind of what uh, Zedekiah acts like. The, 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 the diagnosis and the treatment are the same. Well, in this meeting, he tries to keep everything secret. You can tell this from his, uh, the language that he uses and the fact that he tells Jeremiah not to tell him and then he tells him what to tell him and you know, don't tell anybody your life's on the line kind of thing. And he, he summons him to this third entrance to the temple. And we don't know exactly what this would have looked like, but a lot of commentators believe it was the corridor that's described in 2 Kings sixteen eighteen. that was a covered walkway between the palace and the temple that allowed the royalty to move without going out in public. And if that's the case, that's understandable that this would have been a, a natural place for a secretive meeting, it would have protected against eavesdropping and so forth. And so... Zedekiah is here, and we see in his actions, again, as we've already seen, his paranoia. He is afraid. He's afraid of everybody. He doesn't trust anyone, and rightfully so, because he's such a failure as a king, because he lacks courage, because he has no true commitment, and ultimately because he has no faith in Yahweh. He is a failure as a king, and so he rightfully fears everyone, because everyone is against him. And so because of this lack of trust, because of his own lack of character, he wants to keep it all very secretive. And he starts by saying to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. But then the question is never asked. Or if it is, it's not recorded. There is no question in his statement. They begin to have a dialogue. But it's not hard for us to guess what the question was, whether he asked it or not, or whether he had it on his mind. The question was clearly, is there a word from the Lord? It's the same thing he had asked of Jeremiah previously. He was seeking to know if there was some new, new, new turning, new changing. And as readers, at least for me, I don't know about for you, but you kind of wish Jeremiah would just grab him by the shoulders and shake him and go, <laughs> you nut, you know, it's not, it's not the Lord who's going to change. The word's not going to change. You're the one who needs to change. You're the one who needs to repent. The message has stayed the same. He's calling you to, to, to obey him and you will not. Jeremiah doesn't do that, and rightfully so. He's got more character than me. But he uh, also probably feared for his life. I mean, this was the king. He, had, he was still in custody. He's being kept in the court of the guard. But he had recently been uh, kept in, in Jonathan's house, and he was beaten when he was taken to Jonathan's house there in that prison that had been set up. Uh, he was in the well, in the cistern, the muddy cistern. So he had experienced some pretty difficult things. So it's no... We don't blame Jeremiah for being on guard here. And we also understand why, you know, the secretiveness too with the king. He doesn't trust anyone. So he says to Jeremiah, hide nothing from me. And so Jeremiah says, okay, but you got to promise not to kill me. And Zedekiah swears that he will not have the prophet killed. And so then Jeremiah gives him the message. And it is the same message. The same message he's given him before that initially it's repent. The nation wouldn't repent before Zedekiah's day. And since Zedekiah's time, it was surrender to the Babylonians. Surrender to the Babylonians and you will be saved. If you don't, then Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in. He's going to capture you anyway, or his army will. And the city is going to be burned to the ground. Well, the king, interestingly, points 
in a different direction with his reluctance rather than being afraid of Nebuchadnezzar's army. He says, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me, verse 19. He's more afraid of his own countrymen. It makes you wonder what the political nature of the country was like if you think that we live in the most politicized time ever, <laughs> we don't. There have been many times just as politicized as today, and this is evidence of this. He's more afraid of those who are of the opposing political army or political party than those who are of this army and this force that are outside of the gates. Now, who were these people? They were his political opponents, and we know a number of these, the, the pro-Egyptians that tried to get Egypt to come in, and, and then those who wanted to submit to, to, to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar's army. We're not given the details of these here, but we can understand whether it was those who were traitorous and deserved, uh, or whether it were those who were just cowardly and just tried to save their own lives. Either way, Jeremiah or Zedekiah seems more afraid of them. And were these threats real or perceived? We're not told. It's possible that Jer- or Zedekiah had stirred all this up in his own paranoia, because that's what it does. Sin develops in our hearts in a way it causes us to fear, and then it causes us to, uh, causes us to fear unnecessarily. Sin distorts. It deceives, it perverts, it removes any clear way of thinking if we ever choose to tinker with sin like it's a toy. Wisdom evades us. We do more and more foolish things, sometimes in an attempt to cover up, sometimes in an attempt to hide, other times without any realization of how foolishly foolishly we're acting. You remember Jeremiah said of the hearts of people that they are desperately sick, And he went on to add that they're deceitful above all things. Who can know it? This means that our own hearts will lead us astray, and they will. Sin will pervert our thinking, and the affections of our hearts will long for darkness. And so God's tool through His Spirit's work is His Word that comes as a light, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path to reorient us, to get us back on course. And once we're back on course, His Word serves as an anchor to keep us on course, to steady us. And His Word acts as a chart to show us how to move forward, how to sail forward into peaceful waters. His Word is given to us for our good and for our blessing. And this is what Zedekiah was missing. He was hearing the Word, but he was not understanding that it was for his good. Well, Jeremiah responds to the king to reassure him that he will not be given over to these people that he fears only if he obeys the word of God and surrenders to the Babylonians. He even adds that it will be well with him, which is a remarkable promise given the conditions that are there. But it was only if he obeyed. And the faith that was required to trust the word of the Lord, that it was actually for his good, is missing from Zedekiah's heart. He will not believe. He thinks he knows better. He thinks he can see more clearly than Yahweh. He thinks he knows the way to save himself. And we are tempted to do the same thing when we stiff-arm God's word and think that we know better than what he's told us how to live or the way that he's told us how to live. For example, Colossians 3.8 tells us to put off all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. But how often do we not do that? We would rather defend ourselves in doing these things. Proverbs 19.27 says, An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but we would prefer to keep our prejudicial practices if it makes us money. 
Ephesians 4.32 tells us, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. But we'd rather be vindictive and seek vengeance than soften our hearts and feel weak. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and 4 tells us, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. But we would rather continue seeking our own momentary happiness with no regard for its destructive power. In Matthew 7, 5, Jesus said, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But we prefer correcting others, telling them how they're wrong. We could spend hours, if not days, going through passages like this, picking them apart and looking at all of the ways. You know, if you took a poll in the narthex after church and asked how many how many elements of God's word are hard to obey or do you prefer not to? You would all answer, I'm sure, oh, none of it, right? I mean, all of God's word is good. But when we start looking a little more closely, we realize, oh, this is a little harder than I thought. There are a lot of ways that I choose to go astray, choose to cover up. Uh, I was meeting with, uh, or I, I, I meeting, I visited uh, Alice Robertson yesterday, and she brought up a book that we'd both read and appreciated. I forgot about it. Would be good to go through again, called "Respectable Sins" by Jerry Bridges. If you've never read that, I encourage you to do so. But it's that idea that we sugarcoat sin. There are some sins that we call respectable that we don't treat as the things that we should mortify or put off. But when we don't do that, we become like Zedekiah. And the result of, uh, of, 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 of not mortifying sin, of not killing sin in our own heart, is the same result that Zedekiah would face. That is, our own suffering, our own misery. If we rely on our own wisdom, our own understanding, we'll never believe that God's word is good to us. But when we trust him, not an ideological trust, but a personal trust in the person of Jesus, then we will taste and see that he is good and that he intends good to us, that we can trust his word. He is the good shepherd who leads us in green pastures and besides still waters through his word. He carries us through the fire so that we're not burned and through the deep waters so that we don't drown by the guiding spirit's work of illumining our hearts to his word. His word is good and is for our good. Well, Jeremiah warns Zedekiah that if he refuses obedience... His very family, all the female servants, they're all going to be carried off. He, he has this vision and he recounts it before Zedekiah that they're not only going to be carried off before his very eyes, but they're going to mock him as they do. And he quotes this saying, it's almost like a song the way it's written, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. And so what they're saying to, to, to Zedekiah in this vision is, uh, the very ones that you trusted, your friends, they're the ones who, 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 who betrayed you. In other words, you have no friends. You have no one you can trust. And evidently they conspired because he said that they had prevailed against Zedekiah. So the people that he counted as friends were those who were prevailing against him. Then the line, your feet are sunk in the mud. I think no doubt a nod to Jeremiah's own experience in the cistern in that muddy well. And now it would be Zedekiah who would face a far worse fate. All of this would occur because the king, although he wanted a message from the Lord, would not hear the message the Lord sent to him. Zedekiah would not believe the word of God was for his benefit, nor would he believe the messenger 
nor the message itself. Instead, he digresses further and further into self-preservation, which is our tendency. He tells Jeremiah, keep all this a secret. He ties Jeremiah's silence to his own protection. And then he tells the prophet how to respond if he is questioned. Now, interestingly, it shows you how well he knows his officials because what is the very next thing that happens in the account? The officials come right to Jeremiah as soon as the meeting's over and like, what did the king say? What did you guys talk about? I mean, if, if nothing else, Zedekiah at least understood how his officials would react. That's what they do. They come and they ask him, and Zedekiah had told Jeremiah what he was to say. You shall say to them, verse 26, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Now, was this true? Is this what, what Jeremiah asked? We're not told. Uh, it's certainly plausible that Jeremiah would have asked this or might have asked this because uh, he had had a horrible experience there being beaten and imprisoned in Jonathan's house. But we're not told. We're not told if this was a lie and a falsehood that Jeremiah followed the king's instruction in saying or not. Jeremiah simply gives the answer that the king told him to. And verse 7 says, the officials stopped speaking to him for the conversation had not been overheard. It's this kind of abrupt uh, recounting of how the officials regarded Jeremiah. If you're not going to tell us, or if that's all you're going to tell us, then you're useless to us. And they stopped speaking to him. They were clearly uh, on the move to, to, to come up with some kind of plan, and he was no longer a benefit to them. And then the passage ends telling us that Jeremiah would remain in the custody of the court of the guard until the day Jerusalem was finally seized by the Babylonians. Is there a word from the Lord? That was the question on Zedekiah's mind, whether he actually asked it this time or not. And Jeremiah's whole life and ministry was an answer. It was the answer that God sent. There was a word from the Lord. Zedekiah simply wouldn't hear it. Jeremiah had been sent as God's prophet, his mouthpiece, to deliver this word to the people of Judah, to the king, and to even the surrounding nations. But Zedekiah didn't want to hear it. He would not receive it. And he asks again and again with the hopes that it would somehow change. But he never got it. He never understood that it was he who needed to change. That the word of God stands forever. And that's what we're confronted with each time we look at the word of God. It's always us who needs to change. Never God's word that needs to change. It will not change. It will stand forever. And we have a choice. That's why I say it's personal. It's not just a problem that's out there. It may be out there. But this is very personal for all of us. You and I have been given God's word in the written Bible, the word that is clear and understandable without error, sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And so we should go to it and read it and meditate upon it and especially pray that His Spirit would transform our lives through it. You see, it's possible for us to read our Bibles every day. It's possible to learn all the facts that are in there. It's possible to memorize the lines, even quote the words. But the Word of God is not simply given to us to be informational. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to delve deep into our hearts and divide truth from error, purity from sin, and sincerity from self-interest. You see, His Word is given to accomplish a purpose. And it will always accomplish its purposes. It will never return void, we're promised. And so may we be diligent to go to it, to read it, to study it, and yet be careful not to misuse it for our own selfish gain. You see, the Word of God is a weapon. It's a weapon to be used against the evil one. It's what we prayed this morning about the sword of the Spirit. But it is not a weapon 
to wound suffering believers. The Word made flesh, Jesus, quoted Isaiah and speaking of himself saying, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And so may we, with the meekness of Christ, follow his example in not using God's Word to bruise or to smolder, but rather to strengthen and to build up those who are bruised and smoldering. Yet Jesus did have some harsh words, didn't he? But who were they directed toward? The legalists, the self-righteous. To them, his word was like a hammer. And I think we have to be very careful that we are not the Son of God. There's a fine line between his righteous proclamation and our own concoction of self-righteousness. It's not that we can't look and discern and speak boldly, but we need to do so with great care. If we are filled with haughtiness and pride about our own understanding or accomplishments, then yes, Jesus' words to the Pharisees are appropriate for us to hear from the pages of Scripture. But if that's what dominates our attitude and our posture, then we would do well to go back to His Word and listen again, lest we become like Zedekiah. This year, we've started this reading plan through the chronological uh, plan of reading chronologically through the Bible. I hope that you're taking advantage of that. It's not too late. We're not that far in that you can't. You can just jump in or you can choose to go get caught up. I'll confess I have a couple days to catch up uh, due to, to events and so forth. Um, but uh, you can just jump in or, or, or go back and read again. But I think that as you will do this, and I've already heard this from a few people, that there's a, there's a refreshment that comes from reading God's Word. And I think it's a way that we can encourage one another being uh, in the same place, reading the same thing. I've already experienced that a couple of people talking about Job uh, and what it's like to read Job. It's been a long time since I've read Job, at least all the way through. And it's, it's, it's all new to me. It's, it's refreshing. It's, it's, uh, uh, I've experienced different things since the last time I read Job. And so it's speaking to me in new ways. And I think that God's Word does this in our lives, that it opens our eyes and causes us to see Him and ourselves. So keep reading. And keep praying for understanding, even when you get to those passages that don't make sense. Ask for God's help to open your eyes and to see. But also, let's pray that we would see Christ more and more as we read through, including in the Old Testament. We saw at Advent that Jesus is the revelation, the Word of God, the speech of God to us to reveal the Father. He was the revelation of God in His His incarnation, that is, He was God in the flesh. And he has left to us as his witness the written testimony of his word, and he has sent his spirit to teach us all things through it. So this Bible then that's given to us is a gracious gift by which we might know who God is, who we are, and how we have been saved. That Jesus came not only to reveal the Father, but he came on a mission to die to die for our sins, that we might be saved. He came on a mission to lay down his life that our sins might be forgiven. And in doing so, in coming, He obeyed in all things, so that His righteousness now is credited to our account. And this story of redemption is one that we need to hear again and again and again. Alice said to me yesterday, it's almost too good to believe. And it is. And that's why we need to hear it again and again and again, to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. It's found in every page of Scripture. So as it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path showing us the way to go forward, may we not forsake it as trivial or cast it off like an old religious relic, but may we see and savor the good gift that it is to us 
that the Bible is the word of the Lord that we all desire. It is God's word. And may we sing with the psalmist. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's pray. Father, indeed, would you enlarge our hearts from your word, that we would see not just 